Now let's turn in our Bibles to the Old Testament and this evening to the book of Proverbs and Proverbs chapter 1, which you'll find if you're using a church Bible on page 635. Proverbs chapter 1 and page 635. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, usually when we read the opening verses of a book of the Bible, it sends a kind of subliminal signal that this is the beginning of a series. And I don't know whether that's uh, true or not. I think we will have at least one other sermon uh, in the evening this month from the book of Proverbs. But if the only thing this sermon did was to make you feel like the old conflicts advert where the boy has his conflicts and looks up at the camera and says, I'd forgotten how good they really are, then just to get you back reading the book of Proverbs would itself be a huge contribution to your living of the Christian life. In many ways, there is no more relevant book for us and especially uh, for those of us who are younger, because so much of it is dominated by a burden for the future generation, no more relevant book to enable us to negotiate life in our present culture and at the present time than the book of Proverbs. And I hope at least as we think about these opening verses this evening and the significance they open up for this book, that something of that significance will uh, dawn upon us. And the New Testament writers seem to agree. Uh, Those of you who read Greek and have a Greek New Testament may have one of the editions where they have a very useful list at the back of allusions in the New Testament Scriptures to books in the Old Testament Scriptures. And the version I use lists 53 allusions from the book of Proverbs in the New Testament and five direct quotations. In other words, if if your mind was full of Scripture when you would be reading the New Testament, as you read through the New Testament, you would constantly see the colors of the book of Proverbs shining through, and especially its emphasis 
on wisdom. And indeed, you remember how in the New Testament itself, on the one hand, Jesus himself learned wisdom. And Jesus himself, we are told, is the wisdom of God. And in him are stored up all the treasures of divine wisdom. And all of this has its background here in the book of Proverbs that places so much emphasis, as we see already in verse 2, on what it means for God's people to have wisdom and therefore to live wisely. And it should be abundantly clear to us, as David was hinting this morning, this is not the same thing as having massive knowledge. There are people with massive knowledge, even massive knowledge of the Scriptures, who lack wisdom. And the deep concern of Solomon in the book of Proverbs, as he passes on this rather striking collection of various Proverbs to the community, uh, is that we would not only grow in knowledge, but that we would also grow in wisdom. And Proverbs is one of those books you can dip in and out of because it's a kind of compilation album. Um, it's got some entire movements in it, and it's got some pithy sayings in it. It's got connected links of sayings in it, and it's got sayings where one proverb seems to lead to another in a haphazard way, although usually, eventually, you can see the connection between them and among them. And it begins in a very interesting way. You, you would notice, even if you just turned over the pages, that the book of Proverbs opens with long speeches directed to the sun. Uh, there are probably ten of these. Um, it's a primer for fathers for that talk or these ten talks, son, you and I need to have a talk together. And these ten talks, they all begin with the words, my son, provide very basic understanding of how to negotiate life. And then they're followed by several collections of proverbs. Uh, the chapters that follow contain a long collection under Solomon's name. And then we have uh, another collection, the words of the wise, and then another collection of Solomon, and then a shorter collection of Agur, and then finally, strikingly, uh, a collection under the name of the man after whom Gulliver of Gulliver's Travels was named. That's a trick question at the next party you're at. What was Gulliver's first name? It wasn't Gulliver. It was Lemuel. And the book ends before we've this marvelous section on the best wife in the world that are the Proverbs of King Lemuel. And they're all, as the title tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, they're all coming to us because King Solomon was fascinated with wisdom and proverbs. And indeed, you remember when he prayed at the beginning of his reign, God said to him, essentially, I will give you what you ask for. He had the wisdom to ask 
supremely for wisdom. And we're told that he uh, spoke, perhaps some of them were his collections, he spoke 3,000 proverbs. And so in this way, this is a kind of uh, Solomon's compilation album of lessons that he had learned uh, as he watched the way in which God's people were able to negotiate life in a sinful world. Uh, these were lessons that could be put into practice in especially training our children how to negotiate life, and in the process learning how to do it ourselves. So in this sense, we might say this book is Solomon at his best. And we might also say it is compiled especially for those of us who are parents and grandparents to be able to pass on divinely given wisdom to our children. And if our children need anything, many of us need the same. Wisdom, how do you negotiate a world that has become rampantly ungodly? And uh, since the New Testament uh, will tell us that we are to walk in wisdom, how are we to live the Christian life in a way that characterizes our Christian lives as wise? And I say this is important because uh, just think about the number of Christians you have ever described as being wise. Or the number of Christians you know who kind of stand out to you as people who are wise Christians. And my suspicion is the answer to that question underlines for us the need that we have to return personally to the book of Proverbs and to pray with Solomon that through his word, God would give us wisdom. And I want us just to look at uh, these opening verses and some of the things that flow out of them uh, this evening in a, in a basically introductory way. And first of all, to, to ask the question uh, that has an easy answer, what is the burden of this book? The burden of this book is the same as Paul's burden in Ephesians chapter 5. That those who are filled with the Holy Spirit will be characterized by walking or living in wisdom. That those who are followers of Jesus Christ will exemplify what it means in this remarkable combination to be both wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And that is a remarkable combination, isn't it? Wise as serpents, and yet unlike serpents, harmless, not causing harm to others, by our wisdom, which can be a very dangerous thing. And it's this combination that this book is all about. Solomon wants his children, and as it were, we want our children as we want ourselves, verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction and to understand words of insight. And he begins with a kind of glossary of terms, doesn't he? 
those usually, you know, they come at the end of the book. If you read, uh, if you've got a volume of the poems of Robert Burns, there'll be a glossary at the end to tell you what all these Scottish words mean, even if you're Scottish. But he begins with a glossary at the beginning. Because like a number of biblical words and ideas, uh, we're like Augustine, aren't we? Before he was asked what time is, he said, I knew exactly what it was until just before you asked me. And wisdom's like that, isn't it? We all, we all know what wisdom is, but when somebody says, well, what is wisdom? Well, it's… And what he does here is he, he picks up what wisdom is, and he, he walks around it like a, like a jeweler in the east end of London with his little loop in his eyes. And he shows us various facets of what it means for an individual to be wise. And as I say, he's got a whole glossary of terms. The first is the word wisdom itself. And the word wisdom, I suppose, is a little like the French, excuse my pronunciation, savoir-faire. It's related to knowledge because you can't be wise without knowledge, but it's really got more to do with how you're able to work with your knowledge. Indeed, it's the kind of thing that uh, some of the craftsmen at the time of the building of the, 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 uh, the tabernacle had, how God gave them, them special wisdom. Uh, it's like people you know. It's like the artists in our congregation that you, that you look at what they have painted and you know that you can have that idea in your head, but how do you communicate that down through your arm, down through the paintbrush, onto the canvas? In a sense, you have the knowledge of the picture, but you don't have the ability to put that knowledge into effect. And this is what he is passionate about, that we should be able to put the knowledge of the gospel we have the knowledge of the covenant life of the Old Testament Scriptures into practical daily effect in our lives so that we are seeking to achieve the best possible ends by the best possible means. That's wisdom. The wise person is the person who sees what the goal is and is actually able to get there. Think about a situation like this. There is somebody in the congregation in need, and you go to them, you say, is there anything I can do for you? That's knowledge of their need, that in a sense, kind of lacking in wisdom. But the person who turns up at the door with what they need, you see, that's the person who has wisdom. So it's a, very, it's a very multifaceted reality. In that sense, it's not something that you can learn from books, although books are important. Uh, it's a savoir-faire. Because living, living life in fellowship with God and among His people is not just how much you know. It's about how you, how you negotiate the reality of your relationships with others. That's wisdom.
And then he uses the word instruction. Do you notice that? To know wisdom and instruction. I think in the old NIV, it's translated as discipline. And that's really a bit of an over-translation, but I can understand why they translate it that way, because it's instruction with an edge. Um, it's a little like the New Testament's use of the word correction. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Scriptures are given to us for correction. You know, whenever my teacher uh, corrected me, I winced. It, you know, it usually meant a red cross. But the, the Bible word for correction is a word that's used outside of the New Testament in a medical sphere. For he, here's, a, here's something that's out of joint, and uh, the physician has a way of, uh, of restoring a, a broken leg, a, a, a deformed limb is corrected. So it's got a it's got a it's got a kind of negative edge, but with a with a positive function. And um, Solomon is saying, actually, that's of the essence of wisdom. The person who is wise is able to to take that. The person who is wise not always uh, justifying him or herself but is able, to, is able to take correction. And that's wise. Um, and then he goes on to use another word, not just instruction in that sense, which, which means, you know, the first thing we need to be conscious of is that we are sinners. That's the first thing you need to be conscious of, that you're a sinner and that because you're a sinner, you, you're able to develop that humility that recognizes you need correction. And then he speaks about insight, which is a, a, a form of the verb to, to discern things, to, to have understanding. It's, it's, it's language, actually, that in the narrative of the Old Testament is most associated with Daniel who's a terrific example of wisdom, isn't he? He is one of the supreme examples of wisdom in the Old Testament narrative. Joseph is probably the other. There he is in ungodly Babylon. Uh, Babylon is further down the tracks than modern-day Scotland. And uh, he, has, he has this insight as to as to how to live. And you see it right from the opening chapter. And, and even the ungodly recognize it in him. And this is a tremendous thing. The ungodly recognize without being able to explain. Even the magicians recognize it. The wise men of Babylon realize he has the very wisdom that they themselves seek but lack. And what a wonderful thing that is when it begins to appear in the, in the lives of Christians. That, that no matter how much individuals may be hostile to what they think Christians believe, they cannot deny that they exhibit the very reality they themselves as non-Christians lack. 
And so we begin to see just how, how functional this is in the life of the Christian believer, that we have this insight, that we have this discernment, that we're able to, and this is it, we're able to see things the way they really are. Now, why is that important? Because we live in a world where people are absolutely convinced the way they see things is actually the way they are. And we're going to function in this world. We need to understand people are convinced of that. They're not convinced that you share that, but they are convinced that the way they see things is the way things are. But the difference godly wisdom makes is that you realize there is a kind of mirage, that there is a veil over people's eyes, and that uh, the world is a kind of optical illusion and they think what they see is what's there. That's why we often emphasize, don't we, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is that the Christian sees through his ears. And if you don't grasp that, you'll never grasp wisdom. David was saying exactly the same thing this morning to the children, wasn't he? That the Bible is like spectacles, uh, that through God's Word that is crafted into the way we see the reality of what is because our vision has been determined by our hearing. And that's why we've got insight. And Christians should be characterized by, by insight. There should be a sense in which non-Christians say to us, how did you see that? How did, you, how did you sense that if we did this, then that would be the result, morally or ethically? And then he includes wise dealing. Uh, in verse 3, receive instruction in wise dealing. Uh, knowing how to handle people. You, know, you have met people who know much about the Bible and are absolutely hopeless when it comes to handling people with the knowledge they have. They are bulls in china shops when, when we're instructed to be wise as serpents, but more like doves than like bulls. And this is what he's speaking about here. Um, and again, it's a beautiful reality when you see it in a Christian life. Um, and then he speaks about having prudence or shrewdness. And this is, this is very interesting because what he's speaking about here, this prudence, this, this, uh, uh, this kind of wisdom, um, do you remember how Genesis 3.1 in the, in the old King James Version said that the, that the serpent was the, the most subtle beast? It's, it's noun and verb. And, and, and you see, you know, there's, a, there, there's a whole theology to build on this. 
And Paul speaks about there is a wisdom that belongs to this world. And there's a wisdom that belongs to God. And the one thing that they have in common is that they see what will trip people up. That's where the serpent subtly lay. He knew exactly how to play the game so that Eve would fall. And what Solomon is speaking about is knowing how to play the game of life so that you recognize where all the pitfalls are and you're able to walk through the minefield because you understand the mind and the will of God. You're able to see where danger lies. And many of the individual Proverbs are are exactly about that, aren't they? They're about where danger lies. And then he speaks about having discretion, which in this context seems to be the ability to, to plan things realistically. That is not to be an ideological Christian who doesn't know how actually to relate to people who aren't Christians or to live in a world where people are anti-Christian. But a person who is able to see what is actually better. And if you race through Proverbs sometime at your leisure, you'll, you'll notice a good number of them begin with, it is better to. It is better to. It is better to. And this is what is characteristic of the maturing Christian. The maturing Christian not only is able to distinguish between what's bad and what's good, but even distinguish between what's good and what's better. And then he uses the term learning. And learning here has the connotation of being willing to sit under authority. And of course, in this particular context, being willing to sit under the authority of God's Word in order that as God's Word is poured into our ears, it actually begins to come out of our eyes. And we begin, as Kepler said, you remember what he was doing was a scientist as he gazed up into the heavens was simply trying to think God's thoughts after him. And that's exactly what the Christian begins to do as God's Word is poured into his or her ears as we take it to heart. Then increasingly what we discover is that we're, we're actually thinking God's thoughts after him. And it's not so much that we need to go and look up the concordance to see, is there some verse in the Bible that will help me here? It is that, as you remember, was said about John Bunyan, if you pricked him anywhere, his blood would flow bibline. Spurgeon said that about him, so it must be true. And that's what's in view. And you see, again, that that involves knowledge, doesn't it? But it involves more than knowledge. It involves an increasing attitudinal conformity to the truth of Scripture so that we develop these, these instincts. This is not being in a situation in the office tomorrow and thinking, oh, what does the manual say about this? Need to get my iPhone out and look up the concordance. No, 
No, this is about so growing in wisdom that you, you develop these instincts. As John Newton uses the illustration of somebody who plays the piano well, that they've, they've done all the disciplines, they've learned the keys, they've, they've looked at the score, they've memorized the score. Any of you ever uh, see a yo-yo ma at the proms a couple of years ago? walking on with his cello to one chair and playing Bach for two and a half hours. How was that possible? Because he'd listened and he'd listened and he'd listened to the score and it become part of him. And now it was flowing out of him because in a sense he was, he was giving himself to the music. And, and what he was doing was expressing the music. And at the end of the day, since our Lord Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God, that's what it all adds up to, isn't it? That the Bible is poured into us. The Word of God soaks into our innermost being, into the depths of our psyche, ultimately. Not just so that there may be more knowledge but there may be that knowledge of the Lord Jesus that involves intimate communion with Him and transformation into His likeness. And although it doesn't add up to people, although they look at Christians and they say, I, I cannot put together these horrible, exclusive things she believes. And the fact that she lives a life that deep down in my heart I envy. That's what wisdom does to us. Because all of this, at the end of the day, you know, we are taught in Scripture that the, 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 the Scriptures are rivers that all flow into the person of Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not the Bible that saves us because it didn't die for us on the cross and it didn't rise from the grave. And so it's not just knowledge of the Bible that would save us. But what Solomon understood at the beginning of his reign was this, that if he asked for wisdom everything else would gradually fit into its own place. And of course, the tragedy of his life was he knew this, and he briefly pursued it. And then came the crunch. He had all this knowledge of wisdom, but he resisted the very wisdom of which he had the knowledge because uh, as uh, verse 7 says, where all this really begins, and at this point Solomon didn't mean this is lesson one and then you can leave it behind and go on to the other lessons. This is where it always begins. It always begins in the fear of the Lord. As I was coming to church this evening, I was remembering the one sermon I intended to preach on the prologue to John's gospel. 
that after a few minutes I thought, it looks as though this is going to be an entire series, and uh, I think this is where I need to stop tonight, just with the introduction. But even if we never went on past the introduction, let me give you this exhortation. Try and remember how good it tastes. Try and catch a vision of what is set before us in, in God's Word. Because, as I say, we are, we are living in a time when we need. And, dear friends, I say this as somebody who has never been in a situation where people around me have taken the name of the Lord Jesus in vain in my work. If they had, they would have lost their jobs, obviously. Where people have never chewed me out where people have never raised the question with me uh, about uh, gender or sexuality or all of the things that many of you face day in and day out and have to negotiate. So I am not, I am not saying this out of that experience. Uh, but what I do want you to see is, as you read through the book of Proverbs, you realize these Proverbs actually emerge within that kind of context. And uh, one might say that a proverb a day will keep the devil away. And that's not a proverb in the book of Proverbs. But it's not a bad proverb. And as you do, you will see this. And with this, I really will finish. That what, what is it that makes a proverb so significant. And one of the things that makes a proverb significant is that it fires my imagination in order to captivate my affection. Okay? It fires my imagination in order to captivate my affection. So I might say to you, you better do that now before it's too late. Or I might say to you, a stitch in time saves nine. And what does that do? I tell you what it does to me. It, it conjures up some piece of clothing that just needs a small stitch. And the notion that if I, if I don't do that small stitch, in a couple of days' time, the whole clothing will need to be restitched because it will come loose and become useless. Now, what has that done to me? What has that done to me? It's fired my imagination with a real-life situation, and it's done so in order to capture not just my knowledge of this, but to capture my affections. Wow! to make me feel, to make me feel my trousers ripping and the embarrassment that might be caused and the fact that if I'd done a very small thing, I would have saved somebody having to do a very big thing. And, and so you see what happens then? It's not just that I understand the situation, but 
my affections as well as my mind, my, my emotional life, my motivation is drawn to try and thread that needle and to make that stitch. And so many of the Proverbs are, are exactly like that. They paint some very, sometimes very startling pictures in order to communicate truth, truth about how to negotiate the world, but also to grab my affections so that I'll want to negotiate the world that way. And of course, that is exactly what it means to, to know Christ, isn't it? To have, that, to have that understanding of who He is, but to have that understanding of who He is presented to us in the Word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that our, our very affections are captured, and therefore we have new motivations to love Him and to serve Him. And this is the reason why in two places in the New Testament, one in Jesus' own words, another in the words of the Apostle Paul, there's a huge insight into what it means to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember how at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says, on the last day there'll be many people who will come to me and they will say, Lord, Lord, uh, we did amazing things in your name. We did miracles in your name. Do you remember how Jesus responds? Well, he responds, depart from me, you never knew me. Except he doesn't. He says, depart from me because I never knew you. And when Paul describes his conversion, he says, I came to know God, or rather, he says, actually, actually what happened was I sensed I'd come to be known by God. And it's this, it's this that belongs to the very essence of what it means to live the Christian life and to grow in wisdom that you understand that um, this is not a matter of me mastering the Bible. This is not a matter of me mastering information about Jesus. This is about me being mastered by the Bible. This is about me being mastered by the Lord Jesus. Not, this is what I know about Him, but I know Him in a way that also means He knows me. It's a life of communion. It's a life of fellowship. It's a life of, this is what the Word says, Lord, that, that is exactly what I was going to do. That's what I want to do. And the great tragedy of Solomon's life, and the day and the hour we cannot pinpoint, but it happened very early in his reign. A day came when he continued in amassing the knowledge of God, but barring God from the knowledge of him. And so this is a beautiful combination, isn't it? Growing in learning, growing in understanding, growing in knowing, but also growing in being known. And this means we'll have to come back to Proverbs.
later in the month. Let's pray together. Lord, how amazing it is to us that you address us in your Word in so many different ways in these great narratives of Scripture and in these extraordinary prophecies of Scripture, in books of Scripture that fire our imagination, in books of Scripture that teach us what it means to have true devotion, in those books that tell us verse by verse and chapter by chapter all that our Lord Jesus did as He walked the face of this earth for 33 years. And those books given to us through the apostles by Your Holy Spirit that lead us into an understanding of who He really is and what it means to fellowship with Him. And then a book like this that teaches us very specifically how to be wise. Oh, we do confess how much we need that wisdom. And we pray together and for one another, and especially for, for our youngsters, as we, many of us, live in a, in a world of unwisdom, hostile to the wisdom of God, the world that in its wisdom did not know God, the world that has turned the creature into its God. We pray you would give us the wisdom of God, that we may be able to negotiate life in a way that is utterly faithful to you, for which we need great courage, but also full of grace and wisdom that will surprise people, that will mean they'll see no matter what they do, they can never get a wise man or woman, young person, down. And we look to you to give us this. And we thank you for the wonderful promise that you gave Lord Jesus through your half-brother James, that if any of us feels that he or she lacks wisdom, all we need to do is to earnestly ask you, and you will give it, because you are a father of light in whom there is no shadow due to change, and you delight to give good gifts to your children. So fill us, we pray, with the spirit of knowledge and wisdom and understanding for Jesus, our Savior's sake. Amen. I'm going to finish by singing the song in Christ.